There were growing objections uh, over the course of the discussions of this uh, of this settlement that it created a number of problems, including uh, basically violating the fundamental principles of copyright that the copyright owner gets uh, to decide how and when their copyrighted content would be used. This is Lawyer to Lawyer. The award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast. And yes, they are attorneys. Bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. Thanks for listening today. I'm Craig Williams from Southern California. My co-host on the East Coast, Bob Ambrosi, is in court or otherwise goofing off today. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court and have a book out called How to Get Sued. And we'd also like to take this time to thank our sponsors, SunTrust, who offers private wealth management solutions for attorneys and legal firms at suntrust.com slash law. Clio, a web-based practice management software program for lawyers at goclio.com. And Firm Manager from LexisNexis, a leading provider of information and business solutions at myfirmmanager.com slash LTN. Well, Google and a group of authors and publishers who sued the Internet giant going back to the bargaining table after a federal court judge declined to approve a proposed $125 million settlement between the two parties. The group took Google to court for violation of copyrights after Google digitized and published snippets of their literary works online for Google's massive books database. Google promised a cultural revolution by making every book ever written available online, but this promise hasn't been fulfilled just yet. It's such an important case for so many people, publishers, authors, consumers, book retailers, all greatly affected. And there's much to discuss, so let's get right to our guests. And first joining us is George Pike. He is the director of the Barco Law Library and assistant professor of law at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. He teaches research, privacy, and copyright courses, and is a frequent lecturer on issues of First Amendment copyright, and internet law for library professionals. He's also a regular columnist for Information Today, publishing a monthly column on legal issues confronting information producers and consumers. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, George Pike. Thank you, Craig. appreciate your uh, call and look forward to our conversation. Great. Our next guest is Lois Wassoff. Lois has more than 30 years of experience in the publishing, media, communications, technology, and entertainment industries. She has a legal and consulting practice specializing in copyright and trademark matters with a particular focus on issues relating to publishing. Lois is general counsel for Publishers International Linking Association, known as Crossref, an international trade association of scholarly publishers with more than a 1,000 members. She has been following developments in the Google Books Settlement for Copyright Clearance Center and has presented a series of webinars on that subject for CCC's Beyond the Book program. Before starting her own practice in 2002, she was vice president and corporate counsel at Houghton Mifflin. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Attorney Lois Wassoff. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Well, George, can you give us a quick history lesson on the Google Books case? 
Well, uh, yes, it started back uh, in 2004. Um, Google announced that it was entering into a partnership with a number of uh, large academic libraries to digitize material from their collections and make them available through the web. Um, they also entered into agreements with publishers, um, but most of the focus of the litigation has been on this agreement with libraries. Essentially, their plan was to digitize all the works available in these libraries, whether they were in print, out of print, covered by copyright or had gone into the public domain. Um, the database that they were going to be creating would be available on a limited extent. Basically, when a person did a search and encountered a work from this database, they would be presented with a small portion of the work relevant to their search. A snippet was the word that uh, was, uh, was being used. Um, and then they would be provided with some kind of access information, either uh, contact with the library, contact with the bookseller, some way of finding a, a copy of the book. Um, in response, a coalition or group of publishers and authors filed suit against uh, Google claiming that this plan uh, violated their copyrights, violated the copyrights in the works that were being digitized. Um, Google defended, saying that it was fair use, that their intention was only to provide a this small snippet, that it was transformative, that it wouldn't have an impact on the market, and consequently it was fair use. Over the next several years, there was discovery going on, of course, um, but also settlement negotiations. And the settlement that was proposed, it was amended um, once fairly significantly in the process, but the settlement that was proposed essentially provided that Google would develop, maintain, and be able to sell and license a database containing the full text content of all of these works. In return, they would provide a royalty payment to authors whose books were digitized, um, regardless of whether they were used. Um, they would develop a fund, actually, the, the development of a registry that would maintain information about all of these works and provide for distribution of the royalties. Um, and then these databases and works would be available to libraries on a either um, you know per book basis or on a subscription basis to libraries and other and uh, you know other um, uh, information uh, resources. Um, basically, there was a lot of real excitement about this, the idea that it would make all of this content that was uh, previously only available on, quote, dusty old library shelves. I love hearing that quote over and over in this, uh, in this, uh, in this litigation. Well, you um, never really do dust them, do you, George? Uh, actually, we do. It's somewhat of a measure of how of whether the book needs to be weeded, whether it passes or fails the dust test. But um, yeah, we do have library shelves, and they do get dusty. But uh, um, the idea then uh, was was very exciting to a lot of people because all of this content that was very limited in its availability. A few libraries would have it; had been out of print for years. Um, would be made available. On the other hand, there were growing objections uh, over the course of the discussions of this uh, of this settlement that it created a number of problems, including uh, basically violating the fundamental principles of copyright that the copyright owner gets uh, to decide how and when their copyrighted content would be used. Um, I guess a point I should have made is that 
Google would essentially be able to make all of this content available, whether they had permission or not, um, and pay for a royalty. If somebody did not want Google to use the work, they were required to opt out of the, uh, the database and the registry. Um, there were also objections raised by the Justice Department about antitrust concerns and that the settlement essentially went beyond the scope of the original lawsuit, which was over these snippets and, uh, and whether they were covered by fair use or not. Uh, and then, as we all know, just a couple weeks ago, the judge um, rejected the settlement, found that it did go too far, that it was essentially um, – uh, the judge basically felt it was a forward-looking business arrangement, that it didn't adequately re- um, reflect the needs of the various uh, uh, class members, and uh, while he didn't uh, base his decision on antitrust, it was clear he had antitrust and other concerns as well. So that's the picture in a nutshell. All right. Thank you very much, George. The, Lois, the judge said that the agreement would grant Google significant rights to exploit entire books, and it would give Google a significant advantage over competitors. What's the background, and and why is the judge uh, making that kind of a ruling? Well, that's actually an accurate description of what the settlement agreement does. Um, The judge ultimately made a ruling about whether or not that arrangement is permissible uh, as a procedural matter under the, the procedural tools that were being used by the the uh, proponents of the settlement, which was uh, by using a class action mechanism. Uh, as, as George mentioned, one of the major concerns expressed in the discussions about the settlement agreement was that it dealt with issues that didn't, that really didn't come up in the original pleadings. The original case was based on complaints about scanning of full works, delivery, of what Google described as snippets, small portions of those works as part of search results, and also the re-delivery of those full text scans, those full digitized versions of the works, back to the libraries that had provided the analog copies for digitization. And that was what, it was that a whole set of activities that the publishers felt violated um, copyright, and the, and the authors felt that way as well. The Lawsuits that were brought were separate lawsuits. The Authors Guild brought one lawsuit. The publishers brought a separate lawsuit. The Authors Guild lawsuit adopted the mechanism of a class action suit. It defined um, a class very broadly as authors of works in copyright that were in these library collections and that had not given permission for the scanning of of their works. Um, the publisher suit was brought as a regular litigation, more of a classic test case. Several named publishers specified works that were in the collections of the University of Michigan and that were going to be included in this database and in the search results. The What happened through the settlement negotiations, which took years, the, suits, the separate lawsuits were filed in 2005 and the first settlement was announced in 2008. What happened was that when the parties got behind that curtain and started trying to work out the issues, what they did was craft a settlement that had some backward-looking aspects that looked at the scanning and the delivery of the snippets and the delivery of the copies to the libraries and made an arrangement with respect to those. Part of the settlement was Google uh, agreed to pay $60 per work to any to a rights holder who claimed 
who filed claims with using a particular mechanism they set up um, with respect to those scanned works. Um, the forward-looking aspects of it were more controversial because the forward-looking aspects authorized Google to engage in behavior that goes beyond any fair use argument. The, the delivery of full text of works, of complete works, giving access to a full text of the work on the cloud, uh, ultimately delivering print-on-demand copies or um, e-books. Those kinds of activities were not activities that Google was arguing would have fallen within fair use. The settlement agreement functioned as a broad license agreement. Now, that's fine if the only rights holders that were bound by that license were those that had come forward and claimed and said, Google, you've scanned my book, and okay, I'll take my $60 for past activities, and here's your license to, to go forward. But because of that class action mechanism that I talked about and that George alluded to, the settlement was going to be binding upon ent- individuals and corporations, rights holders, heirs and estates, initially, in particular, from all around the world, who did not, who fell within the class. And if they didn't come forward, if if a particular individual or entity didn't come forward to assert a claim, the settlement was nevertheless going to be binding upon that individual or entity. So that became the flashpoint. That's and where you're, you're now you're now talking about the opt-in and opt-out portion of the program, right? Right, which is a function of the use of the class action mechanism. It's because the parties adopted that class action mechanism that the Authors Guild had used in its lawsuit that the the settlement agreement, if approved, would have been binding upon entities that were not directly before the court and be, and would have been binding upon entities that did not opt. Out. So um, that became uh, that became a real question of a uh, procedural question under the uh, Federal Rules of Procedure, Rule 23, that controls class action. That's what raised the issues that both you and George alluded to, the antitrust issues and other issues, because it was that opt-out characteristic of the settlement. It's the fact that the settlement would be binding on that huge silent group that created a lot of the issues. That's what gave Google essentially exclusive rights to use the unclaimed works. What um, George, and George is very familiar with this phrase, I'm sure, what, with, it gave Google the right to use the orphan works, the works for which a copyright is still in existence, presumably, but no author can be located. Because the author has passed away or the corporate uh, owner has since disbanded. That's, you're right. It's, it's, it's a very big problem for uh, libraries and the information community. Absolutely. Now, it's a big problem for... Orphan works are a a problem that goes across the board, and um, it's an issue that there have been several attempts to address legislatively that have not yet come to fruition. This settlement agreement was a way of addressing that issue of orphan works through um, a contract, through an arrangement, arrived at through this class action settlement mechanism. And one could argue, and and many of the objectors did argue, that the settlement would provide benefit 
primarily to one licensee, and that was Google. So that for at least some purposes, Google's ability, Google would have an exclusive or functionally exclusive right to use the, the orphans. George, this is the kind of thing that Google's arguing that benefits libraries, benefits people all over the country. Now, millions of out-of-print books are going to suddenly be available. What's wrong with that? Well, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, from the library's perspective, we think that would be a, a wonderful idea. I mean, we've got, you know, uh, 450,000 volumes here in the law school library, 5 million volumes in the university library, uh, many of which are sitting on shelves and, and essentially unavailable unless you're willing to come here, do a search, and find them. So it, it's an outstanding idea. It, unfortunately, it just as, as Lois indicated, it runs in the face of copyright law. Those books are still under copyright protection or presumably still under copyright protection if they've been published since the 30s. Um, and uh, were commercially published, and the, and the uh, copyrights were renewed under the uh, the old uh, 1909 law. They're likely still under copyright protection. A library can't know whether an orphan work because they can't identify the copyright owner. Whether it still is under protection, whether the copyright owner even knows that they have the copyright or cares that they have the copyright. If they were to digitize that work and make it available, they run the risk. Whether it's a large risk or a small risk can be debated, but they certainly run the risk that they will be guilty of infringement. Um, Congress sort of created this problem by its continual extensions of copyright law throughout the uh, the 20th century, uh, as late as uh, 1998 with the Copyright Term Extension Act, um, by creating these, uh, these copyright lives that live generally in most, but certainly not all cases, far beyond the commercial life of the particular work in question. I think it would be a wonderful idea, but I recognize as an author myself that I'd like to be able to control that or at least get paid for it. Um, and as, uh, as an information professional, I'm concerned about one vendor having all of that power over that resource. Right. Well, it's time for us to take a quick break right now. We'll have lots more on the decision to overturn the Google Books settlement when Lawyer to Lawyer returns right after this on the Legal Talk Network. Has the recent economic climate affected the financial goals of your firm? Get back on track with help from SunTrust. Our private wealth management legal specialty group works solely with lawyers and their firms to deliver unique solutions designed for the legal community. SunTrust advisors give you sound guidance on everything from maximizing cash flow and waiting through benefits planning to understanding how to retain attorneys and staff. Learn more at www.suntrust.com legal. SunTrust. Live solid. Bank solid. SunTrust Bank. Member FDIC. Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack is going to introduce us to the world of cloud computing and how it can be beneficial to lawyers and law firms. Jack, we're hearing great things about cloud computing and its utility for law firms. Can you tell me why so many lawyers are excited about cloud computing? I think the most important thing about cloud computing from a lawyer's perspective is that it gives them the power and breadth of features that traditional desktop and server-based software uh, gives them without all of the IT overhead and inconvenience. So there's uh, all the benefits and none of the downsides of traditional desktop-based software, and they're able to focus on practicing law with a really solid cloud computing platform behind them. 
So I think that's where you're seeing a lot of the the excitement is they're now able to realize the, the potential of IT without all of the headaches. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O.com. Thanks for tuning into our program today. We want to let you know about something extraordinary happening in the legal industry. Right now, hundreds of independent attorneys just like yourself are working to bring a very special product to market. These attorneys are part of a development program at LexisNexis, and they are working under NDA on a brand new application that will change the way you run your practice. This solution, LexisNexis Firm Manager, is a web-based, highly secure application operating in SAS 70 Type 2 attested data centers. If you are interested in test driving LexisNexis Firm Manager at no charge, or to learn more, visit www.myfirmmanager.com slash LTN. It's the office calling again. Don't answer it. Why not? I'm listening to Legal Talk Network podcasts to get my CLE credit in West Legal Ed Center. Oh, yeah. I need to do that, too. Where do I find them? It's easy. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and pick a program for CLE, click on it, and start listening. Or go to WestLegalEdCenter.com and choose from any of the Legal Talk Network programs available for CLE. That's perfect. The office can wait. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams. Let's continue our discussion on the rejection of the Google Books settlement now with our guest, George H. Pike. He's the director of Barco Law Library and assistant professor of law at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. And attorney Lois F. Wassoff, she is the uh, general counsel for Publishers International Linking Association. So, I, George, along with you, I'm an author as well, and uh, you know, sixty bucks doesn't seem like a whole lot to me for the use of my book for uh, ad infinitum. What, what's is that another issue in the settlement? I think that is. As I think Lois very accurately and I pointed out, and I'm glad she did the distinction between sort of past actions and future actions. The sixty dollars is essentially compensation for the past action. Now, for a book that's been out of print for years, maybe that's reasonable. The problem is, is that under current copyright regime, deciding what is a reasonable price is a matter of negotiation between the copyright owner and the potential user. So 60 bucks might be fine with me, but it might not be fine with you, and it might not be fine with, with another commercial author. And then looking forward... Google was um, part of the settlement was that Google would pay a continuing royalty to this registry that would in turn distribute it to the authors for their future uses of the works. Anytime uh, you know, a, a, a flat rate for the subscription, a portion of advertising revenues associated with it, and then uh, a portion associated with, um, with uh, you know, print on demand or ebook use. Yeah, there would, uh, one of the advantages I'm sure that was in the minds of the Publishers and the authors negotiating this settlement was that um, the settlement would have created a future revenue stream for um, the uses that Google made of this of these works under the terms of the settlement. Okay, well, we're nearing the end of our program, and it's, so it's probably time for us to wrap up and get your final thoughts. So, Lois, let's start with you and and uh, 
can maybe can address the issues of whether we're going to be seeing Microsoft or whether they're already in there, Microsoft, Amazon, or, or other people that could be competitors of Google jumping into this uh, this issue? Microsoft and Amazon were um, two of the most articulate opponents of the settlement because of that aspect that we talked a little bit about, that uh, Google was going to... Um, in their their argument was that Google was going to have a particularly powerful position in relation to this database, one that they couldn't replicate. Um, I think it'll be very interesting to see what happens next. My one of my hopes for this is that whatever happens with the particular settlement in this case, and the judge, in his opinion, basically asks the parties to go back to the to the drawing board and come up with a settlement that he could approve, and he gave them some guidance about what he he thought that should contain. Um, but whatever happens in this particular case, I would hope that there's going to be renewed interest in getting Orphan Works legislation that would apply equally to Microsoft, Amazon, and um, the libraries that George was discussing, uh, the ability to scan works, for example, for preservation purposes, is critically important to libraries. And the law should address some of these issues, um, and I hope that there'll be a, um, more focus on that. It's because of that concern that the, um, the some of the benefits of the settlement might not be um, as public, might be more focused on a single entity, or the extent to which the public benefited might be subject to the um, individual decisions of a single corporate entity, that some of George's colleagues in the library community express concerns about the settlement. Robert Darnton at Harvard was a critic of the Google Books settlement. Uh, he's the head of the uh, Harvard Libraries. And um, he has said publicly that he hopes that the, the the current status of the Google Books case will encourage people to go back to Congress and get Congress thinking about these orphan works issues again in a legislative context. Great. And your contact information for our listeners, should they want to reach out to you? I think the best thing to do, it's, it's such an odd name, <laughs> just plug me into Google. My bio will come up. Um, I don't have a website. Um, my um, email address is lois.wassoff at verizon.net. Great. That's W-A-S-O-F-F, right? That's right. Wonderful. And George, your final thoughts and your contact information as well, please. Well, I certainly uh, agree. I think, if anything, I'd take it an even step farther. I'm not sure that there's a viable settlement to be found in the absence of congressional action to resolve this orphan works problem. Uh, as Lois mentioned, there have been two proposals um, in the uh, the last two Congresses. Um, neither has gone anywhere. The proposals are oriented towards giving a qualified immunity to a user if they make a reasonable search for an owner. Um, in the absence of that kind of solution, the, the court did suggest considering an opt-in arrangement where uh, authors and copyright owners could opt into the database. I guess my question is whether that's going to create a big enough uh, database to be economically viable or worth it for Google, Amazon, Yahoo, or anyone. So in the absence of congressional action, I'm hard-pressed to see where there's a solution to this problem that we can all get comfortable with. I think the idea of a registry actually has some merit. One of the concerns raised 
with the proposals in Congress was that you know, even making a reasonable search required a certain significant amount of man hours and amount of effort. If you're talking about millions of books, that's millions of man hours. Perhaps the registry can be a central location so that one person doing one search can put it in the registry and then everyone else can be able to know that the search has been done and the book is, is available for, for use under the, uh, under the qualified immunity. So, um, but I think I agree there's definitely the need for congressional action and I I think in the absence of congressional action, I'm not sure that, that we get a viable settlement or a settlement that gives us anything close to what, what we in the library and information community would really like to have access to. And my contact information is I can be reached at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. My best way of finding me is either the law school's website at www.law.pitt.edu or my email address is gpike at pitt.edu. Great. Well, thank you very much. We really appreciate you being on the show and providing such fine insights into this uh, situation. It's certainly of interest to people that have written a lot of books. I know that Bob is uh, another author who would be interested to hear the show as well. And for, for our listeners, remember now you can get CLE credit through West Legal Ed Center for listening to Select Legal Talk Network podcasts. You can go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and click on the West Legal Ed Center. And you can find all the Legal Talk Network shows on iTunes. We'll be back here again on Lawyer to Lawyer next week to discuss another great legal topic. So when you want legal, think Lawyer to Lawyer. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.